0: To tell you a story about um, installing a new speaker on my parents' television at home, and actually, <laughs> the other thing I did for them was they've been watching like uh, on a like, pretty big TV that they spent way too much money on early in the flat screen era, like uh, like a Sony like XDR Trinitron, whatever the names used to be, like a when when forty-eight or forty-two inches was like a big deal, but they've been had like. <laughs> <laughs> a satellite at home but they've had like this satellite box from the 1990s with RCA cables <laughs> yeah so like
1: 72576 uh, sort they, of uh, resolution. like
0: 640 480 resolution yeah like they've had basically analog television on this like it's oh, incredibly expensive to yeah. yeah, on this, like, $10,000 Sony television. Well, and then,
1: electronics are bizarre. It, it, when you really look at it. Like, you just said you, you got a Bluetooth headphone, and it doesn't charge anymore after... How long have you had it?
0: I've had AirPods for, like, two years, and, yeah, now they can hold, no, like, no, a 30-minute No, but your, your, your big Bluetooth headphones. Oh, then I bought some really nice Sonys, yeah. And these Sony ones, uh, they don't charge at all. They're just, like, they, they broke, so... Yeah. It's true. I, I'm,
1: a li- I'm forgiving on the AirPods, because... It's just, it's a tiny battery. There's no way you could replace that by hand. And then, you know, what can you do? I guess I, you're right. I,
0: I often imagine the battery in my head. <laughs> <laughs> like, look at the device and I think, this little tiny battery is working so hard. Um, yeah. But if you're on a day of Zoom calls now, like, you know, I'm doing this swapping thing. So I charge the left oh. one. I charge the left one while I'm using Get the right one. Get
1: yourself a pair of AirPod Pros and then you'll be very happy.
0: Maybe I could charge them to the company or something. Yeah, um, you should. <laughs> regardless, the, up, the actual uh, upgrade of my parents' television experience from the 1990s to the 2000s has been mind-blowing for them. Because I've also introduced them to Netflix and like HBO Go and all of that stuff.
1: Have they commented on that there's too much detail? Yeah. That they can see all the wrinkles of the actor's?
0: Well, like yesterday, I also added a speaker and they're like, whoa, we've been living like because they've been lis- lis- like watching SD television on an HD set with like, no speakers, like just the f- the crappiest speaker in the TV. Yeah. And it's so like
1: you're, you're listening to the neighbor's television. Yeah. So their minds the have been
0: have been successively blown. Like I keep bringing them an upgrade every week. I'm like, and this week, we'll have audio. <laughs> like, what? I never knew. Set. But do you,
1: do you run into the problem that they get almost everything, and then they want perfection. And then there's competing <laughs> systems. So they're like, can I get title on the kitchen speaker?
0: Mm. Not yet. So far, they're like, "This is crazy." There's so much choice, and all of the shows are good.
1: <laughs> and can you believe it? It no sounds commercials? like they were watching those QVC or whatever those infomercial shows. Basically,
0: <laughs> if you've ever navigated like an old school cable or satellite setup. This sounds super privileged, but like you go, it's like you're going back in time to your childhood and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe anyone ever watched television this way. Yeah, and it was like
1: 1,200 channels.
0: Yeah, exactly. But the same show on like 50% (laughs) or something, or like old reruns on some, and like uh, seven
1: minutes of show and three and a half minutes of commercials.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And they're just like, they were appointment viewing kind of people. So they would like, you know, their shows at specific times. They were still organizing their whole life around. When a show was on, like um, anyway, so they're like they're now fully bought in, and they're like, "What else are you not telling us about?" <laughs> so uh, show us the, the secrets. The, yeah, show us the secrets. <clears throat> of course, but everything will this, break down.
1: At the same time, uh, you think this would be a perfect time to catch up on reading?
0: For them, maybe yeah. Like this, yeah. Uh, but they and my mom. I, I actually I usually buy her books, and she she's very good about reading. My father, I don't think has ever read in his entire life, so. Uh, what, do your parents um, are they more the watcher or the reader? I mean, both are kind of watching, but when
1: um, my mom is, is a lot of watching, and my dad threw in a rage, he threw out the TV out of his window. <laughs> I took a picture of it that crashed on the on the floor in the in Amsterdam on the street. <laughs> what was the rage about? I don't know. He's like we're watching too much TV, and he just threw it out the window. It's like <laughs> a like it's a rock stock trope of like a hotel trashing a hotel room.
0: It's also kind of like in te- like a Texas trope of like you know handgun in a lazy boy. I don't like what this politician's saying on TV. Yeah. Shoot the TV kind of thing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I think I think he went back to watching a little bit of stuff on the internet. But he's mostly uh, he reads the newspaper. That's his thing. When will we ever get universal basic income? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh boy. Uh, okay. But uh um the, the the resolution thing and the consumer electronics thing, it it's interesting to me in the sense that uh I think when you buy a house you know that it's never gonna be perfect, but the digital gives you this feeling that we can reach perfection <laughs> and you never get there. You you get the new headphone and you're like, Wow, this is the noise cancelling is almost perfect. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden you realise there's a certain time of the day that there's a certain noise and a certain and it's like, oh, they need to improve the noise cancelling because it's not perfect yet.
0: You're right. There's some kind of a segue in this because and as I was watching my father into this week's film, but as I was watching my father, like in his, as his comments were kind of rolling along with what we were watching, I was showing him stuff. He was like, I can't believe how green that green is. That, that he's like, those yellows, I've never seen anything like it, right? Because, you know, just an HDMI connection, which is something new to him, <laughs> w- resulted in an image he had never seen before. And I bring that up because, like, we, we wanted and to And his whole that.
1: profession, he he was dealing with images. His yeah, my experience.
0: father was a graphic designer, yeah. So he was yeah. color and sh- image... Is- <laughs> He's, like,
1: he's professionally invested in color yeah yeah
0: it's like um it's almost like if you make a great meal and um you know someone is like you know puts ketchup on the plate like that's the opposite right so we're like it's
1: like someone who always <laughs> went to mcdonald's and then you take them to in and out burger
0: and but they're actually literally legitimately impressed like i yeah. could never you know versus yeah he he really appreciated it so um he was like so grateful when I left the house last night. But I've, do, I've done these little upgrades every week, and he's just like, Any, anything is possible now. <laughs> <I> <laughs> but just the, think it's the funny
1: thing about technology and progress is then you get used to it, and then you start complaining. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure as soon as uh, tourism to the moon becomes normal, we're going to complain that the food on the flight is not good.
0: Yeah, there's actually a name for this effect, uh, which escapes me, but um, it's a, an eco- there's like a economics kind of business thing behind it where, for example, uh, in any market, like what a is Spoiled bread considered- syndrome. Well, no, it's like, yeah, I, fuck, I wish I remember the name. But basically, you know, in the hotel industry, you could look at there was a time where having hot water in a hotel room was considered a luxury and being able to take mm. like a hot shower or whatever. But now you would consider that probably what, like the first thing you know, yeah. that you expect as normal. And then remember, there was a time where having internet in the hotel, again, a luxury, and you'd even pay for it. I remember
1: that was that was very special if there was internet in the hotel.
0: Yeah, and now you're like, what? This internet's not fast enough. Why do I have to enter the password every two days? What's going yeah. on here, you know? The, the weirdest
1: so. thing about hotel internet is that usually cheap hotels have free internet and expensive hotels you have to pay for the internet. Mm. In my yeah. experience.
0: No no I think I see what you're saying they're like you know these people have money they can afford the internet maybe in those yeah. Uh, situations Yeah it's, it's a usually just
1: bus- business deduction so we'll,
0: yeah yeah something well the hotel industry i'm sure is like going through some tough times right now reevaluating Yeah it's business model Regardless so to, so this week um you chose you selected Tokyo Ga by vendors After Denders. the trauma
1: of, of Sonic I mean, preface it. L- let's yeah. talk
0: about that. Because <laughs> I found this film a little bit traumatic, and I, I can talk, we can talk through that. Okay. Um, and, yeah. But uh, do you want to give a summary just of the premise of the film? Sure,
1: yeah. So uh, the, the director, his name is Wim Wenders. He's from Germany. And he's been a, a, a lifetime devotee and fan of the uh, Japanese film director Ozu. And he went to Tokyo to... Sort of see Tokyo now and how it compares to what he's seen in the films of Ozu and speak to people who worked with him, but also it's a travel diary. Uh, but so we, I, I have the Wikipedia in front of me, so it's a number of distinct chapters, so we can analyze it because each chapter has a different theme. But he
0: he's generally go, you know kind of going to Tokyo in search. Yeah. Of the pure image, in search of this image that Ozu is so good at presenting, according yeah. to him, yeah. of the Japanese way Have you Japanese seen way Ozu's
1: films? Because maybe we have to explain who Ozu is and what he's about.
0: So I wasn't like super familiar with Ozu's film. So actually, I I got the Criterion uh, collection account. I'm on my trial. I went back and I watched uh, a bunch of Ozu after watching uh, after watching Tokyo Ga. Because yeah. I really wanted to... I mean, once you watch Tokyo Ga, because he, he talks to people that were involved in making Ozu's films as well, you're curious, like, you know, there's some really... Yeah, and I
1: really... thought, oh boy, yeah, Jeremy's not going to like the Ozu films.
0: Why? Why would you think that?
1: Because of the, the old-fashioned gender roles.
0: There is a lot of weird gendering of roles in it, but what, it, what I appreciated about them, ultimately, and I think that's reflective probably of Japanese society but I wouldn't know I'm not Japanese but of of the era certainly because the ozu films were made uh, from the 1920s through to his death in the 19 in 1960 something right yeah and they but they portray and I think this is interesting like in comparison to American cinema where during that era maybe a spaghetti western would have been more popular they portray like nothingness or them like domestic life like in Tokyo story one of ozu's films like it's just the parents go visit their kids in Tokyo. <laughs> like yeah, that's the premise that's story. of the movie. That's yeah. story. Well, the, the, I, like, I think
1: uh, American movies are all about uh, a dramatic climax and often in violence and problems are solved either through crying or screaming or killing. And yeah. in Ozu's films, problems are sort of solved by not saying too much and just waiting it out.
0: There's a lot of yeah silence in between in the di- the dialogue is actually somewhat like zen and soothing. Like you watch and you, it's like getting into a warm bath. You know, it'd be yeah. like, "Hi, Raphael." But Hi, Jeremy, but but, but uh, what did you in, do today? Yeah, e- I went to the we, shops. <laughs> yeah. If we
1: if we look at Sonic last week, uh, mm-hmm. all the conflicts are solved with the uh, battle. Yes. And that—that's for children. So, from age five to age one hundred, you learn that if you have a problem, face it, beat the shit out of them, and then walk all over them. That's the way you get ahead in life.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and good advice. And I—I th-
1: I think I think, uh, went to Tokyo looking for this this peace and tranquility, but at the same time, Ozu's films, all of them, are about the loss of uh, old times and the nostalgia and the the loss yeah. of peace and tranquility because. Japan went from a traditional, non-Western country, moving more towards a Western model.
0: And this is where I started to really like dislike um, the film. Like, like I think I feel comfortable enough now in this podcast format. There there are parts of it that I found, let's say I didn't dislike, but I, in fact, I it's not like or dislike, but I found disturbing somewhat because Wim Wenders is German and he's coming to Tokyo and he's like judging. How the people of Tokyo have lost touch with their soul, and they're appropriating American culture and um, consumerism, and therefore, and, and there's this horrible scene at the top of uh, one of the like viewing uh, towers in Tokyo where, where he
1: meets Werner Herzog.
0: Yeah, Werner Herzog's there. You might recall from our yeah. podcast a few episodes ago with Constant um, and Werner Herzog's like. There is nothing here. There is no image. There is no transparent image. You look around. The image is gone. It is. It is disappeared. There is, well, <laughs> there is no we, purity. We there about, is no soul.
1: We talked about uh, Werner Herzog in the, with Constant that uh, the idea of the earth only being pure without humans.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So if, 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 you're, if Werner Herzog's whole point is like, I prefer things without humans, then mm. Tokyo is not the place to be.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, because he looks down at this like, you know, industrial landscape, that is to say, like the human manufactured landscape, and he's just like, there is nothing from here. You you yeah. really have to search. It's an archaeology. And then Vim Bender says, actually, the image that I'm looking for is the image of Ozu, and that image is on the ground. And so he gets in. And actually, yeah. this is in the Ozu, one of the most interesting things I found about him that I that's revealed in this movie is he shot all of his work on, uh, on a tripod that was only like two inches tall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So everything's on this really well, like it, low point of view. Yeah,
1: so maybe, maybe that's where we can start because when you think of uh, traditional Japanese uh, homes, you're always sitting at the floor level or on a pillow, maybe two inches off the floor, but not at a chair level. Mm-hmm. So that creates a very different photography or a very different the the traditional idea that in a gallery you hang works at eye level eye level is different when you're sitting on the floor and it yeah. creates a very different mood immediately like it it it's so um fundamental the eye level and in I think in uh, in film noir you often have extreme perspectives so like, your camera's very low on the ground but it's to show that a crook is coming down the street right. you know what i mean yeah, yeah like yeah, you yeah. see the f- but it's never it, in in an american movie or a european movie if someone's having dinner the camera would never be 50 centimeters from the ground yeah, but yeah it's just it, unheard yeah. of yeah, like, yeah. It, because then you're f- you're filming people's knees yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and but, there's something humble about sitting down on the floor. It's a, a very different thing than if, it, almost if you imagine uh, a colonial Englishman in India sitting on an elephant in, on a chair. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, yeah.
0: And traditional, I think, um, if you watch some of Ozu's... One of the great things about watching the, the Ozu films themselves is you get this view of domestic life as it once was, where the Japanese home was almost transparent so that... You know, people walking by on the street would like drop in and say hi. You know, and, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, because there's so much openness in the homes themselves.
1: I, <clears throat> and then, I, I, yeah, I read an old review of, of the the Tokyo Ga and the critique of Wim Wenders was that uh, Ozu's films are all about the the interior and the domestic, and then Wim Wenders goes around uh, filming the streets of Tokyo and he's like oh it's very busy it's not the same way it was in the Ozu films well everything was into Ozu never shot the city
0: no in fact I thought that was that was that's an incredible point and one that that was like really remarkable if you watched both and then I also then did a YouTube search for Tokyo 1950s because that's the era that I think Ozu probably 1950s was kind of his the, the peak of his <clears throat> well, that's, filmmaking. The
1: tipping, that's the tipping point of post-war and d- deciding where the country's going to go and yeah yeah
0: but in these like youtube montages of rare quote-unquote you know tokyo footage or japanese footage it's all just like driving by outdoor scenes it's this kind of drive-by uh, and and that's not at all the intimate you no, know it that, was
1: crowded already probably yeah and the best I've, I've...
0: moments the best moments in the in in Tokyo Guy I think are like these moments in the funeral um sort of the in the not in the funeral in the cemeteries right where yeah, yeah. children are playing and families are gathering and that's the most intimate I think uh moment in the film is is seeing kids play baseball next to a, you know pile of trash in a cemetery or whatever yeah um but the, just... the,
1: the, did this movie make you more curious about visiting japan
0: well this is where i thought we would spend some time because you and i have both visited japan but i had not only i only just visited about a year ago um, and you have visited many many times and so yeah. when vim benders opens this film he talks about wanting to find this image this image that had been represented to him and it's worth noting that uh, vim benders only became aware of ozu um not late in his life but like in his career like after he had finished school after he thought he knew what you know film history was and then he went to a, a cinematech in manhattan and they happened to be showing someone actually uh, urged him to go to a cinematech to see these ozu films that were showing it on a rare occasion in new yeah, york cause because
1: I, I think he lived in paris for a few years before and the story yeah. was that he would see four movies a day and get his mm-hmm. film education
0: That's right. Yeah. And he felt like he had seen every movie. And then the only reason these movies were showing in Manhattan is because this, this sort of, um, I don't know what the right term for it would be, but you know, the term he used is housewife, but like someone, a woman living in Brooklyn who is not associated with the film world. Um, she, um, she actually wrote hundreds of letters urging different studios and cinematechs across the country to show these films because she had seen one once, at a Japanese cultural institute in uh, Brooklyn or somewhere in in New York and was so taken aback by these films. And she had no knowledge really of film history, but she made it her life's passion (laughs) to get Ozu in front of American audiences.
1: It is really interesting. Once you start seeing things from the perspective of Ozu that you see how dramatic and violent normal films are. Yeah. Even even a rom-com, there's like, there might be a bar fight, or there might be people pulling each other's hair, and, and and it's so normal in films that you're like, holy shit, that I didn't know you can make a film without that.
0: Well, here's the thing, you know, the Japanese had not, the reason Ozu's films weren't seen in Europe or America was the Japanese felt they were too Japanese, and there yeah. wouldn't be a market, there wouldn't be a market Kurosawa for
1: Because Kurosawa was more popular, and in, in Kurosawa there is murder Samurai. and fighting, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or, or the, the sort of Yakuza movies with the shooting, and... Yeah,
0: yeah. so this idea, but it actually, that actually, that point kind of resonated with me as a Canadian because Canadians say the same thing. Like we have certain directors here that you'll never see outside of Canada. and We'd be ashamed to show you the work because <laughs> they'd be like, it's so Canadian. Yeah. You know, because we'd think it's too Canadian and the American market wouldn't understand. In fact, the American market would just tease us about it, you know, which yeah. is like kind of the big brother problem of the world, which is like, oh, like, you know, they just they won't get it, and then they'll just say we're stupid and we should be more like it's them. Funny, there's I'm, a shame I'm thinking, built into
1: it. I'm thinking about what Dutch movies would be too Dutch to export, but then I think <laughs> that the main cultural export is uh, these TV concepts like uh, Big Brother or The Voice that were developed in the Netherlands. Mm. Uh, you know, it's so a reality TV was kind of invented in the Netherlands. I think there was MTV's The yeah. Real World. Right, uh, right, right. But then Big Brother happened, and uh, that was the whole concept that they were. Trapped in a house without information of the outside world, and uh, you would just watch them being bored, which kind of yeah. harks back to, to Ozu, but in a in a in a very fake. It, it's more fake than Ozu. I don't know. Yeah. No, understand? no, no.
0: I think you're making an interesting point because I've heard Vim vendors talk about. Um, this current generation as being like having lost touch with the preciousness of the image with the sacredness of the image, because we can shoot images like, you know, if you're making a modern film today in digital, you would shoot a hundred times the footage you needed to edit a film. But in, you know, even when he made Tokyo Ga, he shot only apparently two and a half times the the footage yeah. that he needed right like well, almost it, every shot was precious
1: yeah. and if you it, i always thought of that uh, because i've always been between the the still image and the uh, moving image so, uh, I'm, I'm not in the narrative long form I'm more in, in the from still to loop basically mm-hmm. or generative and i've always found that the more focus you can give an image the there's an intensity Yeah. So then when you think of the peak, like maybe something like the 16th chapel, where you put so much energy into one image that doesn't move, and then now we're at a point where you just shoot and shoot and shoot, and you don't even edit anymore because you're posting everything on uh, social media, and and it's not even social media where things stay, it's more like Snapchat or TikTok where things disappear, so I don't even know if you can speak about an image. But this is where I my like
0: I beg to differ a little bit because like obviously yeah. I was born into the digital video era. And yeah, yeah. I was a very early adopter. Yeah, but
1: you still made digital videos that remain uh, published.
0: Yeah, but my whole thing at the time, well, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Where it's not meant for destruction; it's meant for preservation. But even that still there's a like, long history there. I used to say though when I was in art school, like, and it was based on like the the context of you know showing work online, but also in the gallery and. Online and in the gallery are not that different with video because basically you have about like two seconds of people's attention. So I used to say like every frame is important because it has to tell the whole story in that one frame because people have so little attention. Um, And I know that sounds like, you know, different from Vim Benders. It is different, but it's also the same, which is that the image itself, any, any split second has to be, you know, in some way considerate. And just because like the point of view I always present in my work is like, either an artist studio or more increasingly just a domestic space. It's so weird right now that that's like the, the norm. Um, but I think <laughs> the, the world you know. came to you. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. But there was a reason for that, that, you know, people would, you know, what is maybe lost on, on certain people who weren't of that internet art generation was, you know, the idea of the studio was obsolete. So we've talked about this before the bedroom studio, actually, the bedroom replaced the studio. And that was, that was like a, not a political act so much. Well, it's kind of a political act. Like, it is, it is. Yeah. You know, this, is, this this doesn't belong to the elite anymore. This belongs to everyone. So and, uh, anyway, it's really interesting to see like, you know, now with TikTok and Snapchat well, and Instagram. Maybe that what, I'm, the... what
1: I'm getting at is if you think of the, the, the master painting that a whole studio of 50 people work on for a year, mm-hmm. and then the trajectory to moving image, and then the trajectory to ephemeral image where... Someone's account is the image, not the individual posts. So it's really, and then it almost becomes like nature, where uh, if you don't follow it, uh, yeah. it's not recorded. So, it's a river. You, you yeah.
0: can't, you can't, uh, you can't, you can't see a whole it. river at the same yeah. time. Mm-hmm. And so
1: I think that this movie is at the era when the idea of media was magazines and television. And so there's a shot where he's in his hotel, very similar to the movie Lost in Translation. I think when you're jet lagged and you're watching American TV, but at Mm -hmm. the time all electronics were produced in Japan. So he was talking about how Japan is producing these boxes that then disperse American propaganda around the world to show John Wayne and et cetera. Um, That era is so ancient now. That that, That's the interesting thing to me. The Mm -hmm. idea that you would use a, a device to... Uh, spread culture and everything became more local. The media became more local.
0: And yet here's the thing that that I thought you would remark on, you know, and and maybe we can discuss is like, you know, I've just been to Tokyo and it really left an impression on me. Like, and Kristen, we went together and it's like very quickly became one of our favorite places in the world from just a seven day or 10 day trip. And so as I was rewatching this film, I had extreme like bouts of nostalgia, including there's one scene Raphael, where he's in Shinjuku, you know, yeah. and he goes into the bar, and Chris Marker is in the bar. Oh, yeah. yeah, that that bar called La Jete, I went to that bar, and actually, I tried to go to it twice because I couldn't find it. <clears throat> and and so I actually photographed like f- the the pursuit of finding this bar because yeah, like I was yeah, trying to yeah. figure it out with a friend. And compared it's to weird. images it's, I it's saw this, online.
1: It's this area of bars in Tokyo that you always end up at, even if you don't try. And you're just like, whoa, there's these tiny bars and it's weird. And uh,
0: This kind of piss alley or whatever. Yeah, Shinjuku and, 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 and it's,
1: it's one of the biggest cities in the world and somehow you always end up there.
0: It's pretty much, yeah. Like also this little area that they're referring to is about, you know, as big as a a small neighborhood block in a, in, in a in a city or something. Maybe even yeah. smaller. Maybe smaller, like it's like, and it's like a New York block in size, but it's so tiny and so dense. Um, but then that bar in particular is so small and it's called La Jetée and it's run. It's been the woman in the movie is the woman I sat down with, the bartender. <laughs> and I spoke to her in French because I was like, well, this bar is named after La Jetée, which is a Chris Marker film. And he's French and she's she famous. Like a friend of mine is like, you have to go to this bar. And I sat down and spoke with her in French for a good half hour. It was quite awkward, actually. <laughs> but anyway, like, it's such a small bar that actually, if you come go in, you sit down and it's tiny. It's like you're almost actually in a storage space, not a, not a yeah. real room. Yeah. If you, if someone else comes in and you it's need a to leave, everyone needs to leave the bar. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And it's up a little tiny staircase. So just the fact that they're probably in the tiniest space in the world that I've ever been in, and that that's a space that makes its way into the film... I don't know. I had th- That was like a rush of yeah. like, holy In, in a
1: way, like he, he was trying to find the, the, the feeling of an Ozu film, and he was trying to revisit that, and he, he didn't succeed. He didn't find that, Mm-mm. but he did capture Tokyo very well. So if you've ever been and then you see Tokyo Ga, uh, it hasn't changed that much, and it really feels like that the way you see it in the film.
0: But it very much felt like the view of a tourist in Tokyo, and that's where I, like I think I got uncomfortable in comparison okay. to Ozu, which is that he is still not in and never will be. In fact, this has to be shot. I'd like to see the same movie done by you know someone living in Japan and what they would present. You know, um, like it's just not. I, I it's, don't know. It's, it's like, the outsider's I, I think, point of view. I think
1: the the example. There's the because a, a big theme in Bim Vendre's film is. Uh, memory and how the mediated image uh, melancholy cha- changes memory so you mm-hmm. you have a perfect image from a film and then you aspire to that and i think we all know that feeling mm-hmm. um but then there's the the rockabillies in your yogi park that uh, every sunday they all go there they dress like juvenile delinquents from the 50s from the u.s but an exaggerated version i think Japanese hair on average lends itself better to the rockabilly ha- haircut <laughs> than uh, than white people's hair. So they, they, they have the rockabilly look but times 10. So they, they have a, a bigger pompadour and uh, very weird shoes and they dance for the whole day there and you can go there still. They've been there for since the early 80s I guess they yeah. started imitating the 50s but you can still yeah. go there and some of those same people are still there and somehow it doesn't feel like you're a tourist when you're there at that moment. It, it, and even though it is a tourist thing, they're also just, it's just there.
0: Well, like, I, I, like, yeah.
1: I, I don't know, yeah. like going to Central Park on a nice day, I don't think you're a tourist when you're there.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I hear what you're saying. Um, like,
1: it, what I mean is Central Park is a place that New Yorkers will also go to. It's, not, it's different than uh, visiting the Statue of Liberty.
0: No, yeah, I hear what you're saying. So it's the public life that is common. Um, yeah. And the, int- the most intimate moment in this film, obviously, is when he's interviewing Ozu's cameraman, yeah. who has worked with him his entire life. In fact, he stood by <laughs> Ozu's side, like, from the time he was an assistant, he, and, he's, and he characterizes himself as probably the, the, the only cameraman in the world that's ever worked with a director in such, like, uniform solidarity. So loyal. So loyal. Yeah. And he talks about after Ozu's death.
1: And they're in a Japanese home while they're shooting this with a view of a garden, like a very nice uh, tatami floor and a big view of a small garden and... He's describing how he films things on the low tripod and how he,
0: would, <laughs> which is great. And yeah. he has to lie down. And Ozu is like so controlling. And yeah. we once we set the camera up, we all run away. We're just very worried. Like are, we, no one touched the camera. To, yeah.
1: <laughs> and, and and Ozu makes jokes that the tripod is his girlfriend. And
0: uh, or no, I think he made the cameraman. I think never, you know made jo- those jokes because he was so dedicated to Ozu that he had no so other loyal. no yeah. other relationship except to the tripod. Um, and this tripod is also custom made. It's, it's it's barely a tripod. I don't even know why he used a tripod instead of just putting the camera almost just on the ground or something. But um, the guy breaks down crying when he talks about how Ozu, like, was his entire being was wrapped up in in, in serving Ozu, like, in serving this master. And then when he was gone, he lost a, the spirit within himself to continue. It's <laughs> yeah. so tragic. And you do realize that that is a very intimate moment about and- In a way that
1: that's a more intense emotional movie than in any of Ozu's films. You never see people cry.
0: That's true. Yeah, they're actually the emotions in Ozu's films are. I don't know if this is normal for the era in Japan, but the dialogue will be such that they, someone will say something and then on the other end of the dialogue, someone's just smiling, like a gr- huge grin across their face, like, <laughs> to like, arigato, and then the person's like, just, and then just cut to the, a reverse shot of the person smiling. Yeah, or sometimes
1: <laughs> someone's upset, but then you just see the back of the person. Oh. Yeah. So yeah. I, I it, it's hard to explain when something's subtle how radical or how different that is. Like well, you know, the, the, yeah. the absence of, of uh, if you say this dish hardly has any salt, but it's still very uh, it still has a rich experience that's hard to explain.
0: Yeah, I think the reason I like that one scene, though, is throughout the whole film, you know, um, Wim Wenders is kind of critiquing the fact that, you know, Japanese people, but I think generally humanity in in, in its entirety is losing touch with reality. You know, he talks about the fake food that's in the windows of all the restaurants, and he goes and visits the people that make those sculptures. He he talks about having gone to Disney World and then turned back at the last minute because um, yeah. he doesn't want to see a, an American yeah, it's, it's very, replica.
1: It's it's very not you. He's He's not embracing the future.
0: Well, I wouldn't say it's not me. I just say like you know that's a pretty commonly cited argument that would now cons- we'd probably consider cliche if we made the film today, right? Of like simulacra and like the search for the authentic. Like you'd go to Las Vegas today and you'd be like, "This Las Vegas is like so out of touch with reality." And but yeah. then the postmodern postmodern person would be like, "Everything is reality, and there's no such thing as like yeah, what Ben Vendors I, is I, looking for." I
1: understand it, and I think we we've, we've all been raised with this. Deep idea that uh, the world is headed the right way, like that. The idea of progress, that we're we're having a longer life expectancy. There's going to be more equality for minorities. There's going to be economic prosperity, and we're all going to pursue our interests. That's that's a very deep belief in all of us. But every change has downsides. You can't just argue, oh, the car made life better. It's it's not mm-hmm. that simple. Yeah. Like, okay, we can get somewhere faster. Like. Well we I actually have, think yeah. We don't have to go to the post office, we can send an email. <laughs> no you're making a great
0: point. You're making yeah. a great point. And like because ultimately my argument is that the the film feels colonial, but then your argument is correct as well, which is that the the colonialism was apparent in Japan and that's what, you know, he was reacting to. And I, he does run into Chris what, what Marker. What do you mean with
1: the colonialism?
0: well like the like american colonialism is alive through american ideology in the film like it's best characterized in the movie i think when he talks about golf and how the japanese have become obsessed with golf and they've abstracted golf to with
1: with the word colonialism in a country that hasn't been colonized that's like saying that the that europe was colonized by america and i, I think that's mm. that's a bit problematic compared to countries that were literally colonized
0: yeah, I bring it up though because well, in Japan, Japan was a, a colonial force where they fought back against colonialism in terms of China. Uh, but like, I just want to bring up that he runs into Chris Marker at that bar, right? And Chris Marker at the time was making *Sans Soleil*. Have you seen *Sans Soleil* before? It's that, no, no, um, I haven't. It's a similar like kind of travel log film where Chris Marker's going around literally to different colonies. Is it around the one the where
1: he he films everything without ever looking through the viewfinder?
0: Um, I don't know if that if that's the case, but he goes to like Africa and Tokyo and um, different places all over the world, trying to ca- figure out you know kind of figure out this kind of the shift that's happening globally in the 1980s, it It's exact same of, time.
1: It reminds me of the my parents' generation when travel was more of a uh, a spiritual uh, duty than relaxation, and so you you had to go to new areas and you had to document everything methodically mm-hmm. and you had to go to places where tourists would not come that was the worst and I think the world is so explored now that there's not even the option anymore
0: yeah I mean I think the the thing about Chris marker that's famous is that he would do these films where he wanted to record others like all over the world like like he he used to like I think in one of his in Saucele in the early part of the film he's like you know how in film schools they tell you never to look in, in like look directly into the camera. That's such bullshit, right? And then he shows these shots of people all over the world looking into the camera. It's very powerful. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, Chris Marker himself never appeared on camera um, personally. Like yeah, so this
1: is shot in this movie where he holds a drawing in front of his face.
0: Yeah, and that's actually a reference to this like tension. In, ultimately, I think in Chris uh, Marker's work of like capturing but not being captured. And that's also a tension I felt like Vim Vendors maybe didn't explicitly state. But the idea of taking a picture is, you know, what is that old saying? It's like, you know, capturing a soul. Yeah. Um, and There's a, there's
1: a very th- funny episode that I remember. The, you remember the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the cartoon? Mm-hmm,
0: of course. Yeah, how could I forget?
1: <laughs> yeah. And and some, sometimes these uh, weird kids' cartoons have very philosophical themes. And so there there was an episode where There was a species from another planet that for tourism, they would travel to different planets. And then if they saw something cool, they had a device that would suck up whatever the monument was or whatever the thing was. And so they could have it at home. So they would see the Eiffel Tower and suck it up and it would be gone. And then they would see the pyramids and they would Mm -hmm. take them. And so it is a kind of metaphor for (laughs) things being spoiled by being visited by too many people and...
0: Well, I think like the, the the way like the yes and that I'd add to that is that golf anal- uh, analogy that I was talking about, where he goes to the golf, kind of, these golf stadiums that are across Tokyo at the time, where people are doing driving, and then he remarks, "But there are no golf courses in Japan, so these people will never." They're practicing play out.
1: for something that doesn't exist.
0: And so they yeah. So the, it's an aesthetic performance. And in fact, he finds there's this one shot of a guy, there's one tiny putting green at this location. He's like, only one person is left who remembers that golf is about hitting a ball into a hole. (laughs) (laughs) It is pretty funny because ultimately like, and that to me actually was resonant as like globally resonant. It wasn't just a Japanese thing. It was like, okay, I think we can all admit that we often like, we reach these aesthetic um, points of potential where it's um, it's about performance of the formal aspects versus the actual reason the thing started, the big why behind the thing in that's, the first that's place. That's a little
1: bit where certain video games are at now. Like, Christina is really into Animal Crossing now, and it's it's not about winning or losing, but just spending time and then decorating your home and then improving <laughs> it a little bit and then inviting friends. But there's no winning or losing. and mm-hmm. it, it, it made me think of... Um, what I like a lot about this movie, obviously, I, I love Japan, so that I'm uh, biased, but that this movie seems more of an exploration without a previously a assigned goal. So it's mm-hmm. it's not like I have to find this or this and this story arc. It's just, it, it's kind of a, an exploration and you're not sure if he found what he was looking for.
0: Yeah. I mean, I like that aspect of it because, but he ultimately does draw out some major or significant themes, right? Yeah. Um, oh. About the image. But about, this
1: idea that you know, he, he goes to Disneyland and sees it and he's like, oh, never mind. This is too lame.
0: He turns back, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. finds the kids in the park, the rockabilly's in the park.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, thought- and th- that's the other interesting thing, of the th- I think, uh, the idea of the meme and, and things in culture bouncing back and forth. And uh, so this idea that, that rockabillies have been uh, copied by the Japanese and maybe even improved and... and
0: Well, that's the thing that I, that I, that I would like if, so if the, one of the interpretations would be that this, this is, he's being patronizing towards the Japanese people. Another would be that he's, he could be celebrating their unique flair. The worry I had watching the film was like, it felt a little bit patronizing, like a European in Japan being like, these stupid Japanese, look at how they've like.
1: What what moment was most patronizing?
0: I think that actual moment that we just talked about, where I was like, I turned back from Disneyland and I found these rockabilly's in the park. You know, you could interpret the rockabilly thing as like these kids have no, you know, ownership of their own presentation. Like the jap, the original Japanese culture is being erased by their um, obsession with recreating a foregone American aesthetic, right? Or like. So that's one way of viewing it. I think you could view the same scene and say, like, isn't it incredible the way they've mutated um, and uh, re-presented American culture?
1: It reminds me, David Chang had that food program on Netflix, and one episode was about pizza. So he goes to Naples, and there's the official (laughs) pizza organization that can certify that you're good enough to be worthy of the title pizza. So there's a couple of places in Italy that are worthy of pizza, and then a few around the world, but very few. And uh, there's one place in Japan that has been making pizza very well, and then they film the the head of the organization in Italy, and he's like, we're starting to worry because their pizza is becoming better than ours. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I I do think that uh, the same with the things like Japanese curry, which they took from India, or ramen, which the idea came from China, and then they start going at it and then generation by generation it becomes its own thing and then at some point people just consider ramen a japanese dish
0: well this is the thing like i'm not even certain because you know at least in my brief experience like strolling through japanese museums that like a lot of um a lot of influences just like in europe were affected by um other cultures as well right so Different. There's a lot of influence already in in Japanese culture, as there is in yeah. all cultures. Um, well, there's
1: there's an example that uh, the, the, there's a Japanese printmaker called Hokusai who made the Great Wave. If, if you search mm-hmm. the Great Wave Hokusai, uh, we'll link it in the show notes. It's the it's the most famous image uh, in Japanese art history. I'm sure people are familiar with it. Yeah, yeah it, it's been memed and it's been modified. And uh, um, one of the funny things about it. There's two funny stories about it. I'll, t- I'll tell both stories. Because we always think that money is a bad influence on artists, that, uh, that art should come from within without the influence of money. Hokusai was a printmaker and had been working very hard, and he had set aside money for retirement. And then I think his cousin gambled away the money, so he lost everything. And he's like, oh, shit, I'm old now. I, I, I want to retire. What do I do? So he went to his publisher And he said, what's the most commercial image we could make? I really need to make money. (laughs) And the publisher said, well, everyone loves Mount Fuji. Why don't you make a a series of images about Mount Fuji? So that's what he did. He did the 36 views of Mount Fuji. And that became the most important image in Japanese art history just because his cousin had gambled away his retirement.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, So money's not always bad as an influence. And then the other story is that um, the Impressionists and you know how a lot of impressionists or picasso was influenced by african art and van gogh was influenced by japanese woodblock prints so there's a lot of van gogh paintings where he repaints japanese prints by hokusai and others mm-hmm. but then what turns out is that japan was so isolated and they didn't like they didn't allow anyone because they were trying to keep christianity out that was part of it but they did allow the Dutch, because they were Protestant and they were less pushy with their religion, hmm. and the Dutch would bring etchings and reproductions of their art, so they showed uh, etchings of Rembrandt. And then Hokusai saw that and was influenced by that, and then that went back to Van Gogh. that That's what I mean with we have to be... I think we should always be open with things morphing into other cultures and going back and forth.
0: Uh, well, so do I, and I think that was the thing that was... Like on the, the the itch I wanted to scratch while I was watching the film, like, and maybe I didn't really interpret Vim venderder's point of view on this, but like his search for ozu is a meaning and so, somewhat a meaningless search in in so much as like it might have been there right in front of him, and he w- wouldn't recognize it because it yeah. had evolved, you know yeah, and um
1: well, also he starts off the movie really with a. An essay about Ozu saying, if there was ever a treasure of cinema, it's Ozu. Like, he he admires him. He so respects much. him deeply. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, I think that prefaces that this is not like, haha, let's go make fun of these people. Like, <laughs> no, like, no. So, but the the weird thing is that he admires Ozu so much, and he's trying to find the spirit, but he never goes to someone's home.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the basic—that's the basic critique that I would—I yeah. would have. But you know, being invited into a person's home in in a in any foreign country is like an extreme privilege, right? Like usually.
1: Yeah, and it's also you're in someone's home, but everybody's acting because you're not really. Yeah, in they're their like home. foreigners here, right? Or, um, or a camera. Like you know how everybody's different when there's a camera. So I maybe think of, yeah. maybe that's as we're talking. I'm thinking that's the special thing about Ozu that. He makes you feel like you're really in a home, and it's not a real home. They're actors. No, they're all like, in
0: studio. All the homes are done in studios. I mean, yeah, they say that and even the,
1: home, yeah. the 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 actor that worked with him throughout most of his movies that they interview in this film talks about that he was his whole career he was playing an old man, but from age twenty until <laughs> right, he was right, really an old man. Right, so, yeah, yeah. and he's like, yeah, I yeah. just learned to hunch a little bit like an old man, and I would sit there, and he would tell me, <laughs> so. Yeah there's that weird thing with believable and and maybe we talked about that about the uncanny valley and that uh making the home an exaggerated version of a home that doesn't exist in real life feels more real than doing it accurately
0: yeah i mean i did love the ozu stuff that i watched as a result of watching this film so like i feel a great a debt of gratitude um, did did you kind of
1: skip through certain scenes or did you watch whole films
0: I would watch like 30 or 40 minutes and I'd be like, yeah. I kind of get the gist of this. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I, I'm, 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 not, uh, I'm not yeah. critiquing it. I understand
1: yeah. after this movie you want to get an impression and then later. Because maybe something go back, we, I think. we yeah. can say about Ozu is that he basically made the same movie, but then a hundred times, or I don't know how many films he made. <laughs> yeah. So the movies are always about the kids don't want to do what the parents say or the yeah. conflict.
0: yeah. Yeah, it's almost like soap opera, but not really because it's not that dramatic. It's like, yeah. the, you know, like in one scene I mentioned in Tokyo Story, right? It's just like the, the mother and the child talking about um, how the kid never studies and like the kid being like, I don't know, where where am I supposed to study? And the mom's like, you never study anyway. And then it's like the kid goes and finds a place to study. And it's like, that's like five minutes, and ten minutes of the movie. <laughs> like,
1: what is going on here? <laughs> But uh, the, the funny thing is if you watch a number of Ozu's films, that it's always the same actors. And uh, maybe yeah. an actress is kind of young, so first she plays the daughter, and then a few movies later she's the mother, and a few movies later she's the grandmother. So there's this weird uh, familiarity with the actors that they also become your family.
0: hmm Yeah, so you've watched quite a few then, I assume. Apparently, though... um, And they
1: kind of blend in. Like, I couldn't tell you the different ones because they're also... The titles, are like, one is called Spring and the other one is called Summer, so you can't really remember which one is which.
0: But apparently, um, actually, like, a large number of his films were lost. Uh, They were not preserved. Um, Because even in Japan at the time, similar to in America, early film was not considered something precious. It was just, like, like a kind of consumer trash, you know?
1: Yeah, it was the same with the, uh, uh, the, what's his name, the, the guy who created the Looney Tunes. It's Chuck Jones? Or, yeah. 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 His first job was at the Disney st- Studios to clean up the old cartoon cells so they could reuse them. So you have a piece of plastic that they would make the drawing on to make all the early Mickey Mouse cartoons, and he would come with a sponge and wipe them clean. Well, oh now no. they would be worth millions. <laughs> it's just they're like, no, the, the plastic is more valuable than the <laughs> artwork.
0: Wow. Yeah. The thing that I, I, I think we haven't talked about yet though, is that when we've glanced at it, which is that this film, um, uh, this like kind of travel film where one is observing one's <clears throat> self in an unfamiliar context, uh, is now, you know, something that's pretty much a uh, commonplace for everyone who travels It's Instagram. now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, um, I found it interesting to see the, again, coming back on, on what we opened on the, the, the images that he recorded. And I saw an interview where someone asked a, an audience member asked a question of inventors like, well, how was it that you were able to take these, you know, quote unquote intimate shots and, and, you know, with the children and such like, and people didn't chase you away. They weren't, why are the, you know, why were the kids comfortable or why was that grandmother who walked by okay with you filming her and he said, well, there was just two of us. But, you know, the funny thing is today, I still believe, you know, if you had your phone out recording a bunch of kids playing in the park, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think that that would be welcome. They um, would call the police. Yeah, yeah, you would have to. And so I kept thinking about how how I would record space when I traveled.
1: I, I do think that's different. Uh, my sister's a photographer and she shoots a lot of people with their pets. And I think it's very different when you're a woman. Mm. that it's more accepted of you to just film a stranger.
0: Well, let me give an example. Like I was on the train. If you're in Japan, you're going to be on the train, like, I don't know, 60% of the time, if you're going anywhere, right? And I kept wanting to record these like really intimate scenes. Like one day we went out of the city to a little island, like a kind of like a beach, you know, there's all these little day trips that you can take outside of Tokyo. And everyone at the end of the day is just so tired because they've been running around out in the sun. And... You know, on the train back into the city, you know, people are falling asleep, couples are together, there's families, there's just this like real, tr- like this train intimacy that's hard for me to describe. I don't think it's like American train <laughs> culture or something like that, where everyone was just comfortable with one another. And I kept wanting to record that, but I felt really uncomfortable Trying to take photos of it. I, 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 I'm only describing yeah, a, no. something that I still remember. Like this is a pure image, as Finn hunters would say. Or I
1: think that's a trajectory that every artist experiences. Like you're, you're 15 and you have all these very strong experiences, and then you try to recreate them in whatever mm-hmm. your medium is, and it's not the same thing. And then you start making things that you haven't experienced yet. Let's say that. Here's an example of like the, the, the feeling of falling asleep. Like, how do you represent the feeling of falling asleep in a work? And mm-hmm. then you might end up where someone like James Turrell or something experiential, and you could say that kind of feels like falling asleep. This is where like, we get back. Really,
0: yeah, you're right. But this is where we get back to the river or the highway. You, you know, the highway is the greatest work of art. I can't remember who said that. It's like um, Richard Serra or something like that. But when when Japan actually, Kristen and I are in Tokyo, our favorite experience among all experiences was actually wandering the back alleyways of like of actually of like yeah, the, neighborhoods.
1: Somehow the best is when you're trying to find something and you get lost. Yeah, and it's
0: so incredible the journey. And they just like because you the the back alleys are just like chock a block full of houses and tiny shops and little vending machines. Yeah, and just maybe
1: like, that's what this movie succeeded. It was trying to find the the domestic, but actually found that.
0: It's not the Tokyo Tower, right? It's not like, you know, the big museum. Yeah. Really the the beauty of Tokyo if you I think anyway having been there was like being feeling small but feeling like the even the tiniest alleyway called, was a universe. I always called
1: know? Tokyo the the gentle metropolis. Yes, it's it's very sprawling, so it it doesn't have that sort of uh, extreme height of uh, Midtown Manhattan or Shanghai. I haven't been to Shanghai, but <laughs> And it, I think Tokyo is also a place where y- you, have to be, you have to have some money, but you don't have to be super rich to build your own house with an architect. So every area feels very different. Uh, there's a lot of artistic uh, variety. There's a lot of architectural variety if you walk through Tokyo. So I think that's part of why you're not walking through a bombastic city, but you're just continually seeing different designs of streets. Like The, the whole idea of a street keeps being reconsidered.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah it's like the view The there's so many landscapes in such a in these tiny little narrow strips of behind the scenes it's like behind the yeah, set yeah. It's, and it's backstage forever. It's, you can just it's, keep going and it's very intimate because that's where the kids all run around or go home from school and that's where all the doorbells are to the homes like they're not yeah. on the main streets they're on these like tiny little back alleys
1: and then there's the, the, the sort of low crime thing that you just you don't even think about danger wherever you are
0: yeah anyway, that's hard to capture and I don't actually know oh. if the film captured that domestic space either, but it reminded me that that is not a something that I had ever been had been presented to me prior yeah. to me going there like no one said like,' oh jeremy, you're going to love like you know like looking at all of the different door styles <laughs> or you're not and, you're gonna, yeah you know
1: and one of the things I wanted to remark on so, because this idea of the simulacra and the simulated image i think it's captured very well in the the wax food plastic food mm-hmm. scene. yeah of course yeah so to, to explain a little bit tokyo has a lot of small restaurants it's not um like maybe american cities are driven with franchised restaurants so you'd go to another state but you know there's uh, your favorite chain restaurant and it'll be exactly the same and tokyo and japan is more family-owned places small places so to make you comfortable the, there's not pictures of the food outside but there's a vitrine with plastic food that looks very realistic and so it looks like there's a ramen bowl or fried shrimp or uh, whatever you want or a steak or a pizza and there are factories that make this fake food but it's really uh, you know that it's fake but it's almost real it's really you've seen them right in, in yeah. real life yeah it's yeah funny. they're there it, it has that experience of, of when you're a kid and you see toys or like model trains it's like that kind of it's very fun. Mm-hmm. And so Vin vendors goes to a factory where they film the production of the food. And what they do is they make a a, a cast with real food. And then the funniest thing, he says, that the, when they try to make sandwiches, and so they make pieces of ham and pieces of cheese and pieces of lettuce. And then the process of making the fake sandwich is exactly like making a real sandwich because <laughs> you have to take a piece of bread then put the ham, put a little mayonnaise with a brush, and it looks like mayonnaise, and then some mustard. And then you have to make a clean cut to cut off the crusts and make a triangle sort of club sandwich. And it, it, when you're filming it, it just looks like someone's making a sandwich. Mm-hmm. But then the weird thing is that the people in the factory then take a break, and he's not allowed to film them having actual food. They take their lunch break, yeah. Yeah, so the trade secrets are fine, but the, f- the act of... Eating real food is too intimate to film. This is,
0: that's actually a, a, like a really, really good point because, and that thing probably is a great summary of the film, which is the one, like this, this. The, he's seeking the the Ozu <laughs> yeah. image of the real people in their yeah. real domestic lives, like eating, being yeah. together, and he can't. He's not allowed to access. And and yeah. I, you know, I was saying earlier. He was but allowed in access the film, in public But in the film, if you would, yeah. if
1: if you would have filmed it and said they're cutting, they're making a sandwich, you would have believed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. If yeah. No one had told you that it was plastic,
0: or if it was a drama versus a you know documentary yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Anyway, I did I did really enjoy it? I just thought that that was you know that's one of the tensions in the film is this search for the authentic domestic image, and then you know if you watch the it wasn't until I went and watched some of the Ozu stuff that I was like, wait a second, like. How come this image wasn't presented? Um, yeah, 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 And one of the best lines, though, I just want to bring up in the film is he is in that Shinjuku back alley and he switches from like a 70 millimeter lens, no, probably from a like a 25, a 20 millimeter lens to a 50 millimeter lens, which is what Ozu would use. And he, you know, same exact camera position. And he says, I started to film this back alley. Then I switched to Ozu's, you know, fixed camera. 50 millimeter lens and people who don't know a 50 millimeter lens it's like a slight telephoto um it's probably the most commonly used lens today i don't know if it was back i then.
1: think i think not anymore because i remember starting photography if you had a film camera like a canon or a nikon like a, the basic thing that any photography student would use the 50 millimeter was cheaper and i always wanted a bit more wide but now all the the phone cameras what they call telephoto is more 50 millimeter and but the the thing everybody uses now by default is quite wide
0: on a can on a phone right but yeah. i'm just saying if you're like shooting slr you're probably going to have a fixed yeah, But who 50. does that uh, i mean when you're watching like videos on youtube that look good uh, it's okay, probably okay. shot on a 50 million yeah it's yeah, a yeah. good thing okay. i mean the first lens i bought like i remember starting at fresh books and it was like they need we need to take our own photos and I had to buy a camera ring. I was like, well, got to get a 50 millimeter lens. You know, like this isn't going to look good without that. But anyway, um, that's me like being like, there's probably photographers on the other end of this podcast, like (laughs) cringing. But anyway, he switches out the lens and he's like, and now the image is not mine. I realize that the image that I'm showing you is Ozu's image. It's no longer my image, which I I thought was like a nice, um, I, like that's, was a generous it's kind of
1: like if you're painting and you're like oh let's uh, drip all over the canvas and it's like oh that's Jackson Pollock
0: yeah and but you rarely get that in a film so that's why I say it was generous you rarely get this I mean the whole film was about him trying to find this image that wasn't his but um, filmmakers rarely talk about in, in such oblique terms like this was this this author owns and is is the reference point for this look this image yeah. And um, I don't know, I I really like that. Michael Bay
1: owns this action scene. I I can't go there.
0: Well, it's just like right now, probably now we would all be like, well, whatever, like every image belongs to everyone and like every every image has been created and recreated and mashed up. And so the image is dirt, you know, like I'll plant whatever plants I want in it kind of thing. Um, But anyway, I just like this idea that there could be an image, um, a legacy to that image that belonged to someone else. Anyway, okay, yeah. So, um, so next
1: week we're gonna talk about the movie for next week. So oh, yeah, yeah, watch it. So next,
0: yeah, we're trying this out where we're we're giving you a little preview, and that means we're locked in whether it's good or bad. But uh, both, I think Raphael and I are, are like a, a week ahead. So we wa- I think Raphael, you've watched this film now. I've obviously watched it as well, but um, it's a movie by Jenny Livingston, and it's I wouldn't say a, f- a movie so much as a documentary film. It's from 1990. And for me, anyway, this film is like, like captures a lot of what I talk about on this podcast. And uh, it's called Paris is Burning. And it's about, it's filmed in the, like, kind of, in a similar era, actually, to this Vendor's film that we just watched, um, but in New York City. And it's among African-American, Latino, gay, and transgender communities. And and their, like, culture of um, what's called a ball. But basically it's the kind of origin story of uh, mo- what we would probably consider now modern drag culture, although drag obviously existed prior to um, this exposition. Like when you watch this movie anyway, you'll be like, oh my God, there's like so much of what we now consider today to be like just mainstream popular culture is captured at the very moment it was created in this film. And so yeah. for we'll, me, we'll get anyway, into it.
1: It, it was, uh, we'll, we'll uh, analyze it next week, but it, it's not i couldn't rent it anywhere so i found oh. it on youtube so i'll, I'll link to that so okay if anybody it's wants also, to watch it before the uh, yeah. episode yeah
0: in canada it's on hbo but i don't know if that's um that's global or not um yeah but if you're an hbo subscriber at least it shows up in my okay well, we, yeah my account yeah um yeah so, in, so yeah, see
1: you all next week see
0: you all next week enjoy okay. Bye bye. Enjoy, enjoy what? I don't know. <laughs> That's a terrible <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> enjoy the pandemic. It's horrible. <laughs> bye, everyone. Bye bye. Take care.